Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hey, Hold the Liners, if I can call you that. Um, welcome to another episode of Hold the Line. Now, my exciting non-gun dog news is that we might actually be moving house, actually be moving house this time. As some of you might know, we have been trying to move house for years, and in one way or another, things just haven't worked out for us. So it's actually looking like we might be moving this summer. So keep everything crossed. I'm not going to say any more about it or where it is or get excited about it or anything because it could still fall apart. When it gets to the point of no return and, you know, think there's kind of commitment involved on both sides, then I'll let you know where we're going. But it's looking pretty good. And hopefully we're going to be moving in August if things do go according to plan. So if I suddenly fall silent and appear to be very distracted, that's what's happening. Anyway, let's talk about some gun dog related things, because I've got a question from... Scott, who says, hi, Joe. I'm going to skip to the question here. So um, what is the balance between letting your dog run free and be a dog and keeping your dog in check? Some examples, when going through a park or field and the dog is off lead sniffing, finding gross stuff to roll in, maybe getting a distance away, but could be recalled. I might not be hunting at this time, but just out looking for suitable ground, mushroom hunting, hiking, etc." I sometimes feel like I'm a helicopter dog owner and not allowing too much free roaming. But is there a balance? Also, interacting with other dogs in the field or while training in a normally quiet park and another dog owner comes along. Do you allow any interest with the other dogs? I think everyone has a different opinion on how much or little they should play as the other dog might not be training to be a gun dog. Does any of the above affect training for a gun dog? So these are good questions and I think that a lot of people will be interested in in this as a subject. So I do want to just say, first of all, as I said to you, Scott, that there is a chapter in my book, Force Free Gundog Training, which is called, now I did rename it just before we published the book. So I just have to double check what we called it in the end. Um, we called it How to Stop Walking the Dog. And then there are such subsections of that chapter as what's wrong with walking the dog? But my walks aren't like that. Can't I just cue what I want? Isn't there a contradiction here? How much exercise does my dog need? So if you don't already have my book, you definitely want to get the book and check this out because this is a whole section of the book because it's a very important issue for people who have dogs that are, you know, dogs that live in the house and dogs that are part of the family. 
I don't want to use the word pet dogs. So I think that's sort of derogatory to this this idea that there's you know there are pets and then there are serious working dogs. I just think that's you know in in this day and age, a lot of force free handlers have dogs that they you know are very close to and dogs that live in their house and that are part of the family and that do family activities with them. And they also want to have that dog be able to work as a as a working gun dog. So this distinction between pet dogs and working gun dogs is already starting to sort of fall apart. And I think as as we as the years go by, this is going to fall even more apart, this distinction. So anyway, let's let's think about this as a subject. So it's going to be very dependent on your individual dog. It's going to be dependent on their age. It's going to be dependent on their level of training and and what your goals are for that dog. And it's going to come out of a sort of mishmash of all of that. And it's going to be probably different for every dog. It's going to be hard to make absolute rules here. But I can sort of waffle a little bit about the subject. <laughs> so, so look, the first thing to say about this is about this thing that I've talked about many times before, environmental reinforcers. So environmental reinforcers are just stuff out there in the environment that the dog finds reinforcing. This could be horse poo, sheep poo, cow poo, any sort of animal poo, actually. Um, <laughs> it could be game. It could be of any descriptions. So it could be birds. It could be rabbits. It could be hares. It could be, it could be anything alive and moving. It might be pee spots. So where another dog has peed or pooped and your dog wants to go check that out and sniff that. It might be other dogs. They're also environmental distractions. There's stuff out there in the environment which your dog wants to go and, and see and check out and play with. So all of these things are things that your dog values, which are not on your person and which you have very little control over. You only have control over your dog and whether, you know, if, if for example, you've got a long line on and whether your dog goes to access these things, but you don't, you know, you're not a magician. You can't click your fingers and kind of delete cow poop from the environment, for example, or other dogs from the environment or rabbits from the environment. It's going to be out there and you can't control what happens in a way in terms of its presence or not. So, so the outcome of this is that if you take a dog out into the environment and you plop them there and you allow them to discover for themselves all these amazing things out there, then a lot of dogs, not all, but a lot of dogs are going to want to want to find more of this amazing stuff that's out there. And you can't really blame them, can you? Because that's that's what learning theory is about. And that's what happens when a dog discovers that something is reinforcing. They're going to go looking for it even more. They're going to go and seek more dogs or more cow poop or more rabbits or more hares or whatever it is that they find reinforcing, which will be different for different dogs. So that's well and good. Now, you also have reinforcers. You also have, for example, reinforcers on your person. So food or toys. That's, those are our main two categories of, of reinforcers. And, and what we really want to be doing is teaching the dog to look to us for our reinforcers and to learn to access the reinforcers in the environment through us. Because that way we kind of recruit them, as it were. They're, they're not kind of, it's not us versus the stuff out there. It's, it's kind of, if you want the good stuff out there, then you've got to do something for me. And if you do something for me, then you get to go get that stuff. And that's the kind of thing that, that's the kind of concept or thought process, which we want the dog to really learn. Preferably at a young age, it's, it's much more effective if dogs can learn this when they're young. It's very difficult if you've got a dog which has already discovered the joys of the environment for themselves. 
and they're older and you want to kind of teach them to look to you to access that stuff, that's a lot harder for the dog because it's, a, you know, the concept isn't going to come so readily because they know they can just go get it and that you, you are actually irrelevant. So try to achieve this when your dog is young. Now that means that when your dog is young, you probably don't want to be letting your dog go and experience the joys of the environment for themselves, not through you, because it's kind of working against everything that you want to be teaching that young dog. You want to be teaching the dog, look to me for my reinforcers, food and toys, and look to me to go get that good stuff out there in the environment. So, you know, you might not always give the dog the stuff out there in the environment, by the way. So you're not always going to want to release your dog to go and eat cow poo or, you know, that kind of thing. But the dog doesn't know that. And sometimes there will be times when you can. One of the things I like to do with heel work, for example, is, you know, walking along, the dog is at heel, clicking and treating, good heel position. And if I see something that I think the dog's going to want to investigate, sometimes it's just like a little clump of feathers or something. Or sometimes there's a, a place which I know that a dog is going to have weed on, like a, a really obvious corner or something which, you know, it's a very obvious pee spot. And if I see that we're approaching that, I might, you know, walk close to that. And I've always got a lead on as well, so I can prevent the dog. If they try to directly access the environmental reinforcer, I can prevent that from being successful. And I can wait for the dog to be in a good heel position to look at me. And when I see something that I like and a behavior that I want to reinforce, I can release the dog with go sniff to go and investigate that thing, to go and sniff the corner, which another dog has weed on, or I don't know, to go and um, sniff the clump of feathers that are left on the floor or something. So when you practice this enough, what happens is that you're walking along doing heel work. The dog notices something distracting in the environment, like a corner or feathers or, I don't know, something dead. I don't know, something they want to go check out. And instead of trying to leave your side and break out of heel position, just go go check out that thing, they start to give you increased focus and increased attention because they understand that it's your release that is going to give them access to that thing out there in the environment. So so that's just a very simple way that you can use environmental reinforcers. Now, obviously, if you've got a, a dog which which hunts and points before the shot, then it's all about using environmental reinforcers because that's what the whole name of the game is about in terms of the dog locating the game in the first place. That's a major kind of environmental reinforcer. And we need that dog to be working with us. And the dog learns to work with us and to cooperate and not just to go completely AWOL because ultimately they gain experience of the fact that we have the gun and we're going to shoot and that's what's going to result in something falling down and them eventually getting released to go and retrieve what was shot. So, so there's a way that, that, you know, that environmental reinforcer, the dog, the, the dog understands that they have to cooperate with us throughout that whole chain preceding that because of what they get at the end. Now, obviously the dog's only going to learn to do that when we put the chain together. And there are various ways that we need to break the chain up to be able to work on the component parts of it before we can put it together. But when we do start to put it together, that's what can really keep it running well and keep the dog cooperating with us because that's what you're working together to achieve. That shot, the end and the bird that falls or whatever is shot. So um, anyway, I feel like I'm waffling slightly now, but but Yes. So I think I've answered maybe the question here. I have addressed this question before in the podcast, by the way. So you might want to look back through previous episodes. I can't actually remember which episode it would be, um, but I'm sure it's there. I feel like I've talked about this before. So so my my recommendation would be, particularly with a young dog, is that you don't allow lots of 
dog freely exploring the environment and that you are quite controlled in terms of what you do with the dog. Now, that's also going to be decided a little bit by the dog and by the level of interest that they have in the environment. So if you've got a dog which is, for example, a retriever, they are probably going to be less likely to just go AWOL hunting. Although, frankly, I have met some retrievers who will do that. But generally speaking, less likely than sort of a spaniel or HBR breed, which is bred to hunt before the shot. So you might want to be extra careful if you've got a young dog, which is bred to hunt before the shot in terms of um, letting them just poodle around while your mind is on other things and it's not on the dog and it's not on training the dog. Because obviously there's also the hunting side of things involved with those breeds. So when you do have, you know, your HBO, your Spaniel off the leash and you are out in a rural environment, how does a dog know the difference between when you're hunting and when you're, I don't know, out what did you say, Scott, looking for land or something or looking for the right spot or something, you know, you're just looking for suitable ground. That's what you said. So how does a dog know the difference? So often the best approach is to always uphold good standards of hunting. That's the best approach to have to begin with. So the dog understands that when they're off a leash, they're, they're working and they're hunting. Otherwise it can be very woolly for the dog to understand when they are and when they're not hunting, if that makes any sense. Um, obviously with a retriever, you don't have to worry about that. And and a retriever may not, you know, um, show excessive interest in the environment, depending on their genes as an individual dog. So, so again, it's going to be very specific to your dog. Um, what's your other question? Um, not allowing too much free roaming. Well, that's fine. Don't allow too much free roaming, but what you have to try and make sure that you provide is that you provide your dog with physical and I don't know, psychological exercise every day. And if you can meet those needs, then the dog doesn't need free roaming in the environment where they're going to discover the joys of the environment for themselves and potentially end up ultimately going AWOL. So, you know, you can meet those needs within training. And that's one of the reasons why I love gun dog training is because you can, you can give the dog physical and psychological exercise in a great package altogether outside in an, a natural rural environment and it's all building focus on you and control at the same time, rather than just letting the dog run about everywhere and get a physical exercise by themselves, or um, I don't know, their mental stimulation by learning to chase things, for example. <laughs> we could do that. That would be equally physically and psychologically um, stimulating as being trained, but ultimately it's not going to lead to great things for the dog because it's going to end up being kept on the lead all the time because... It's not safe for a dog to be running about everywhere chasing stuff. So gun dog training, that's why it's excellent. And the other, I think, point about this to make is that there's just not enough time, really. Like, there's, so much, there's so much to train dogs to do. And, you know, if you're also wandering around, letting them pootle around everywhere and, and free roam and stuff, then that's time when you could be training that dog. So, yeah, there's a time issue there too. Having said that, you know, you don't have to be too harsh about this. Like if you, like sometimes you need to walk from one spot to another spot because there's a particular natural feature that you need. So maybe you need water or maybe you need the right kind of cover to practice hunting in, you know, so you may need to like cover some terrain with your dog before you get to the place where you actually want to do the training. And I think it's, you know, up to you to assess the individual dog and just decide what's best for that dog. So some people might want to walk their dogs at heel off leash while they get to the place where they're going to start the training. Other people might ask the dog to walk at heel and then release the dog to go and play. And then a lot of dogs 
will actually come back and offer to walk at heel, particularly retrievers. And then you can do a bit more heel work and then release them to go play. And you can just do this off and on until you reach your desired location. Or, you know, you, people might want to drop a dummy, walk on some way with the dog, send the dog back for the dummy and just do that a few times on their way to the place where they're going to be training the dog. Or some people might have problems and might just want to let their dog free roam because they've got a dog which isn't environmentally focused. So I hope that answers that question. Um, and let's talk about other dogs as well, because that's that's an important subject as well. So Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Other dogs. So the thing to say about other dogs is that they are another environmental reinforcer and they're also an environmental reinforcer that you don't have a lot of control over and that can move quite fast towards you. (laughs) So, um, just keep that in mind and you also don't know what that dog's temperament is going to be like whether it's going to go well when that dog meets your dog um i mean generally i'm very conservative about letting my dogs meet other dogs out and about i will always avoid other dogs so you know as soon as i see someone on the horizon i'm choosing a different direction and if i pull up in a car park and there are too many other cars there i'm leaving that car park so So I'm really avoidant of other dogs and will do all I can to avoid contact with other dogs when we're out and about. And also I'd be quite angry if somebody let their dog run over into my dog's space and appeared to have no control over the dog and be unable to call their dog back. I'd be quite angry about that. Um, You don't want to meet me when I'm angry, by the way. So, (laughs) so, so, so that's what I would say now, but I would also add to that, that my dogs live in a multi-dog household. So so I've got three dogs and they hang out together, get them very well together and they have each other for company. So I don't know if I had an only dog. I think I was maybe want to try to find a way that my dog could have contact with its own kind somehow or other. I'd probably try for that not to happen with strange dogs out and about in public places, to be honest. I would try to have a few doggy friends that I might meet up with 
either they come to to my house or I go to their house or we meet in a mutual spot. Um, but you know that that we have doggy friends that we that we know well. Or if you compete with your dog, that you go to you know events with other dogs, that your dog's going to be around and see a lot of other dogs at those events. My dogs were not very interested in other dogs when we are at events. They kind of know what what they're there for, and you know other dogs are fine, but they're not very excited to to be around other dogs or to see other dogs. So it's kind of yeah. I mean, it's it works out well for me what I do, but I do have a multi dog household, so you might want to make some adjustments to that if your dog isn't the only dog, because yeah, especially if they. If they enjoy the company of other dogs, trying to provide that for them in some way in their life might be a good thing. However, I don't think that we need to provide that in a sort of, you know, letting your dog run chasing another dog until they've got slobber coming out of their mouths, until the dogs are completely exhausted and they've kind of pinned each other down multiple times. And, you know, you know, that sort of dog play, I don't think that we need to be thinking that we have to provide that for our dogs. So if you do have an only dog, you know, going to going regularly to a good dog training class and maybe competing in a dog sport is going to expose your dog to lots of other dogs on a constant ongoing basis. They're just going to be seeing other dogs around them all the time and learning to focus on you in the presence of other dogs as well, which is important and so on and so forth. So and that's another reason why I think dog training classes are really important with other dogs from a young age, because you do want to raise your dog to learn to focus on you in the presence of other dogs and not necessarily to want to go and access other dogs as soon as they see that they're around them. And I think that going regularly to a training class as your as your dog grows up is a really important thing for that reason. So anyway, Scott, I hope that answers your question somehow. I have talked around and about the subject a little bit. Um, let's answer one more question. Hold the line. So we've got a question from Martin who says, Joe, on marked retrieves, my dog always looks up at me to be sent. How do I stop this and keep the dog marking forwards, looking out at the retrieve? So, okay, so this is quite a common problem that people have. And it tends to get sort of programmed in quite early. And I think the reason for this is that on the surface of things, there's part of us which quite likes it when the dog looks at us. I mean, let's be honest, it looks like the dog is very much under control, is looking up at us for permission to go. I mean, there are lots of lots of aspects of this which a novice handler particularly feels like they like it because it feels like the dog is really under control. It's very steady. It's like a dog look, that's looking up at you for, I don't know, permission to go is not going to run in because they're waiting for you. They're showing you that they're looking at you. So there's lots of lots, lots of parts of this which we really like on a sort of human instinctive level. But this is not good training or handling, as it were. And the reason for that is that the dog is going to find it harder to find the the retrieve if they've looked away from it. And if you don't believe that, just... Ask yourself how hard it is to find a poo in a field when you've looked away from it. Now, the best way to find a poo in a field, guys, that your dog has done is to watch your dog doing it and do not take your eyes off that spot and walk to that spot while staring at at it. Do not look away. If you look away because you're like, where's my dog gone? What are they doing? What are they getting up to? You will find it so much harder when you look back 
to find the same spot, particularly if there isn't anything like an obvious tree or plant or landmark feature that you can remember. So exactly the same thing is happening for your dog. So when your dog takes their eyes off the location of fall and looks up at you for permission to go, they're going to find it much harder to find that retrieve when they get out there. So we don't want the dog to do this. What we want the dog to do is to see the dummy fall or the retrieve fall, whatever it is, and then not to take their eyes off it, to just stare at it in a really sort of fixed way until we give them the key to retrieve. So how do we achieve that? Well, we have to incrementally increase the duration on that behavior. If we wait too long, that's when the dog starts to look up at us. They start to, the dog starts to be like, why aren't you sending me? Please send me. And they, they look up at us. So, so the way to help the dog not do that is to send them before you reach that point. You reach that moment when the dog decides to stop staring and, and look at us. And if this has become an ingrained habit, you might have reached the point where the dog is almost immediately looking at you to go. They're almost, they see it fall and they instantly look at you. There's not much time where they're just staring at the location of fall. Now, if that's the situation, you might need to go back to sending the dog immediately. As soon as the dummy hits the hits the ground, you're going to send them, or the retrieve hits the ground, you're going to give them their cue. That will mean that they will go and keep their eyes kind of locked onto it. I kind of like to think about it as a sort of heat-seeking missile. So you know when you watch James Bond movies, there's that sort of red flashing thing in the middle. And I don't know, actually, I might be thinking of Top Gun, to be honest. I don't know. It's, it's probably appeared in quite a lot of movies <laughs> when someone's trying to get a lock on the target and then there's this beep noise and they've got it locked on the middle of their target and they're going to press their button and release the missile or whatever it is. So that's what you need to be thinking about with your dog. So you want your dog's eyes to be locked on to that retrieve on the ground like that missile is locked on so that when you give your key for the dog to go, that's like the person pressing that button to release that missile. So, so yeah, so how do we achieve that? Well, yeah, you're going to send the dog immediately as soon as it hits the ground and not give them an opportunity to look away. And then you're going to need to be very incremental in how you increase that, the duration on that staring at the thing. If the dog does look away and look, looks up at you, I recommend that you wave to the dummy thrower to go and pick up the dummy or the retrieve and just set it up again. Because if you send the dog after they've looked at you, you're reinforcing the dog for looking at you because the dog really wants to go get the thing and you're sending them to go get the thing after they've looked at you. So you're reinforcing looking at you, basically. So don't reinforce looking at you because that's what's created this problem in the first place for you. So you need to wave at the, at the thrower to go pick it up and then simplify things, send the dog sooner next time and make sure you're, you're you know, you're very you're very sure about sending them while they're still looking forwards. And hopefully you can get rid of this habit. It can become very difficult to get rid of if you've trained it in a lot by repeatedly sending the dog when they've looked up at you. So yes, um, I hope that that helps and answers that question about marking. Hold the line. So slightly related to that, which is why I thought I would talk about it here. One of the things that I often notice when I watch retrievers, especially running retrieves, particularly blind retrieves, is the number of times when someone puts their hand out to line the dog up and the dog is not looking anywhere along the hand at all. In fact, it's quite remarkable, but you can see people put their hands out to line a dog up and the dog is looking at the palm of the hand. The dog is not using the hand as a line to anything. It, like The hand may as well not be there. 
it's just become a sort of setup for a blind retrieve rather than giving the dog a line and giving the dog any information about where the retrieve is. So the reason for that is that the dog hasn't learned that there's a connection, a sort of, yeah, connection between the line which the arm is giving and the location of the retrieve. So the way the dog learns that is through lining drills, and there are lots of lining drills out there. So you can begin with drills like the the three in a row, the four in a row, the five in a row drill, where basically you've got fence posts in a, a horizontal line across the field and bumpers at the base of them. And the idea is that you send, you stand opposite the first one and send the dog for it, take the retrieve back from them. that one's the easy one because it's right in front of them. Then you swivel yourself on the dog to face the next one, line the dog up for the next one, and so on down the line, retrieving retrieving a bumper each time. Now, what happens as you go down the line is that the angle becomes tighter and tighter and the suction of the other fence posts increases and the dog has to be really sure about where they're going and the connection and the correlation between your arm and the line given by your arm and the specific fence post out there that you want the dog to line to, the specific retrieve. Now, there are other lining drills. They can get quite complicated lining drills. <laughs> they're, they're quite fun to do because they involve a lot of precision. Um, but but that's what the dog is learning. So so when we see dogs that are looking at people's arms or hands or up in the air or off to one side or looking up the handler's face or, you know, looking anywhere other than staring out at the imagined spot where the retrieve is, then we know those dogs need more work on, on lining. Dogs can be quite successful, particularly you know, in, in the UK without having done all these, these lining drills because they just have a lot of natural ability. They have great noses and they have the capacity to hunt really hard and find what their sense retrieve that way instead. But why not give them kind of an extra boost and another kind of string to their bow, as it were, and teach them how to line really well as well? Just why not? So, so anyway, that's a little tip. Lining drills, check those out if you want to teach your dog how to differentiate one retrieve from another and how to tell the dog you want specifically that one and not this one. Those are what lining drills are about. And there's there's a whole section in my next book, the sequel to Force Free Gundle Training, on lining drills. So you'll be able to read that to your heart's content as soon as I get it published. Well, we have to design it first and edit it. And there are a few other steps, but it's almost there. That's all for this week, everybody. Catch you next time.